If you would this morning just stand with me for the reading of the word. Reading out of Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 7 to the end of the chapter. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here, there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of every individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This is the word of God. Morning. Okay. Get myself organized. Good to see everyone. Okay. So if you like a title for this morning, I'm calling it Stronger Together in Unity. So if you were here last week, you probably notice that we only got partway through Paul's uh, section on unity. Joe obviously started at verse 1 and went through to verse uh, 6, and then we're just going to carry on uh, this afternoon or this morning. <laughs> what time is it? This morning. Um, I've broken my message down into four sections. It seemed to fit quite well that way. So the first section is that we've been given extra grace on top of saving grace that God has already given us. And like Paul, we're going to actually take a little detour for point number two and just look at this whole ascending and descending that we read about in Scripture. Point three, we're going to look at the various roles that God has given the church to equip us for works of ministry. And then finally, the last point, we'll just be looking at how we practically go, grow up into maturity in Christ. So before we get into things, let me pray because I desperately need God's help with this. Father God, thank you for your, your word. Thank you for the truth that it brings to us. Father, I thank you again just for the Lalons as well, just for the blessing that they have been to us as a church. 
And I just pray, Father, your hand would be on them as they go from us and they go out to a new adventure that you have for them. Father, I just pray that you would just uh, take whatever I've prepared and that it would be your words, not my words. I pray that it would be clear and that we would know your presence as we look at your word together. Father, we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you have a Bible and you haven't yet turned to it, we're obviously in Ephesians 4 um, and we just read from verse 7. Um, I'm actually going to read again because it's good for me. And I'm actually going to read from verse 1. So we're going to go all the way back to where Jer was last week. So let me just read. It's a reasonably lengthy section, but I think it will be a good just to rehear it. Okay, Ephesians 4 verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of each, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we have all attained to the unity and the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joint, sorry, from whom the whole body jointed and held together in every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow that it is, so that it builds itself up in love. So when we think about grace, we generally start with the concept of God's saving grace. And we saw this in Ephesians 1 verse 7, where we read, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace. And then in chapter 2, Paul reminds us 
that even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. So through God's grace, as we've learned over the last few weeks, we have been made alive in Christ, having our sins forgiven past, present, and future. But here in chapter 4, we read about a new kind of grace. It says in verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I found that the NIV translation was slightly different and more helpful. The NIV says, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So this is a special kind of grace that has been given to each of us. And this grace isn't based on uh, anything we've done, but it's determined by Christ for us. So what actually is this type of grace? What is this special kind of grace that Paul is talking about? Well, like saving grace, it is a free gift, undeserved and unearned. But unlike saving grace, which is equal for all of us, this special grace is apportioned to us in different amounts according to what Christ determines. But what's really clear about it is that all of us have this to some degree. As we've just come out of Christmas, it's easy to remember just how exciting it was to receive a gift. And unless I'm mistaken, I'm sure all of us would agree that it's actually much more fun to give somebody a gift and see them open it than it is really to receive one. It's great to have one, but it's amazing to give someone a gift and just see how excited they are with that. So their pleasure when they open the gift that we've given them, we see how excited and happy they are. I think that makes us even more excited and happy, which I think is why giving someone a gift is so amazing. So think about how much God must love us that not only has he saved us through his grace, but he's then given us extra gifts. Each gift has been specially picked for us and it's there to bring him glory and build up the church and build us up. So our excitement over the gift that he's given us really brings him more glory as we enjoy it and we use it. In Romans 12, we read, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individual members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace that has been given us. So this is the grace that Paul talks about here in Ephesians. These gifts are given for the benefit of the building up of the body, for us, the sure church. So as we move on to point two, we see in verse eight and nine and ten that Paul takes kind of a breather. He takes a detour in his letter and he starts talking about the ascending and descending. Let me remind you what it says. 
Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, all the heavens, that he might, fulfill, he might fill all things. Now, this verse is definitely difficult to interpret at the beginning, and I found it quite confusing for quite a long time as I tried to work out, with the help of many, um, what it talks about. And what Paul is really trying to get across with this descending and ascending Ascending on high, descending into the lower regions. What, what is he trying to get across to us? So, although in this particular message that I'm doing, this isn't really the details we want to get into, it's probably useful just to say that the ascending relates to Christ ascending to heaven at the end of his earthly ministry. In Luke 24, it says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands... He blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried, carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So that's the ascending part that it's talking about. While the descending relates to Christ coming from heaven to earth. And this is really what we celebrated only a few weeks ago at Christmas. So Jesus spoke about this in the Gospel of John when he said... I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So that's amazing for our eternal security in Christ. But he goes on and he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So that's the ascending and descending. But the key thing that we need to think about in this particular passage is really how Paul talks about giving gifts to men. That's the key thing that I want to focus in on. So Paul wants to emphasize that not only did Christ save us, but he has entrusted us with gifts to build up the body build up the church so point three we look at verses 11 and 12 and there's so much in here Paul lists a number of specific roles or what I'm going to call offices which he used which he has given us to serve the church so again in verse 11 and 12 it says and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the church, or the building up of Christ, rather. So before we get into details on this section, I just wanted to clarify what I mean when I talk about office, because I'm using the word office in a specific way. What I mean by this is a public position that an individual would hold within the church. So it's opposed to a gift that many of us may have. So you could have 
in the church, in our church, the office of evangelist, which would be just one person or maybe a few people in the church that is recognized by the church as the church evangelist. And then you could also have the gift of evangelism. So many of us may have the gift of evangelism. This is obviously a spiritual gift that, as I said, many people might have, but it isn't officially recognized by the church. You're not the official church evangelist. You are just having the gift of evangelism. So in this section of scripture that we're looking at, Paul is more focusing on that office. So the office of apostle or prophet or evangelist. But I'm going to talk about both the office and the spiritual gifts because I think it will be useful just as we look at these four areas. It will bring a little bit of additional clarity, I hope. So the four offices that we have are obviously apostle, prophet, evangelist, and the gift of the office of shepherds and teachers. These gifts are obviously given to the church for the building up of his body. So firstly, I'm going to argue that apostle with a capital A, if you think of like an official apostle, I'm going to argue that they are actually no longer active in the church in the way that I'm going to describe them. I'm also going to suggest that prophet, as you think about with a capital P, think of Moses or um, someone like that, that the way that we think about prophet today in the church, again, is very different. In fact, I would say that the New Testament apostles were a replacement for the prophets in the Old Testament. And finally, I'm going to suggest that the gift of evangelism and shepherd and teacher is really very much the same today as it was in the New Testament times. So that's the direction I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take. So let's start with the um, office of apostle. So just like the word office that we started with, I want to define what I believe the Bible says an a apostle is. And then you can see whether you agree that probably this role isn't working in the church today. So the New Testament has three qualifications for an apostle. Number one, an apostle has to have seen Jesus after the resurrection with his own eyes. So he's actually an eyewitness of the resurrection. So that pretty much means that none of us are going to be apostles just on that one alone. Um, Acts 1, 1 to 3 says... I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken away. After he, had, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering for many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of heaven. So the apostles in the New Testament, physically saw Jesus after he had been uh, killed and paid for our sins and rose from the dead. With Paul, Paul was obviously slightly different because Paul was uh, not a believer when that all happened. But obviously Paul had an amazing experience on the Damascus Road. And in Acts 9, we read about that. 
So now, as he, or, or Saul, and Saul was obviously his name before uh, we knew him as Paul. So now as he, Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So the Apostle Paul had this experience that was very similar um, in that he saw Jesus um, after the resurrection, but through this very unique way. So that's one thing that an apostle would always uh, need. The second thing would be to having special um, commission, to be specially commissioned by Christ as an apostle. So apostles are commissioned by Jesus. In the book of Matthew, we read, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The name of the twelve apostles are these. And then he lists them, and I figured let's not list them. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at near, is at hand. So Jesus himself appointed and commissioned the apostles to go out and work for him. The third thing that an apostle needs is that they have authority to speak and write God's very words. So this is where I would say they're similar to the Old Testament prophets in that they're able to physically say exactly what Jesus is saying or God is saying and write them down, which we obviously have here in the Bible. So Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, we read at the very beginning of verse 1, I am stirring up your sincere minds by way of remember, remembrance that you should remember and that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the command of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So they were given permission to speak like the prophets. Given these criteria, I would definitely suggest that the role of apostle as we new in the New Testament really is no longer available as a gift today because of those three very clear criteria. However, some people do still use the word apostle in a much broader sense, such as referring to a church planter or a missionary. So sometimes you will hear about people talking about apostles. In some denominations, in fact, the denomination that I was saved into, they would talk about having an apostolic team. And they wouldn't be talking about apostles like we read about in the New Testament, but it would more be relating into church planting and things like that. However, in my mind, the danger of declaring yourself an apostle, even with a small A, not a capital A, is that it would suggest a higher level of authority than is probably appropriate for a church leader today. So maybe to avoid confusion, we should just talk about church planters or missionaries. In saying this, though, the gift of apostle was obviously given to the New Testament church, 
and we are still the recipients of their amazing work to the church. And mainly we're the recipient of their work through the Bible and the New Testament. What they wrote, we still have and we still hold to. So that would be the gift of apostle. The next office that Paul talks about is the gift or the office of the prophet. Now, when Paul talks about giving us prophets, we must remember what he says alongside other things that he's written in the New Testament. So in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement. Earnestly desire to prophesy. So in the New Testament, we don't really hear too much about individual prophets. Obviously, in the Old Testament, we would read about Isaiah and Moses and various people. But in the New Testament, we hear much more about the apostles than we do about prophets. But what we do hear a lot about is the gift of prophecy that God gave to the church through the Holy Spirit. So when we think of the Old and the New Testament with regards to the gift of prophecy, we see two very different pictures. In the Old Testament, a prophet is the very, in the, in the New Testament, prophecy is really the very word of God. When a prophet spoke, it wasn't up for negotiation or assessment. It was God's very word to his people. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So it was from God to the prophet to the people. And if a prophet spoke and it was deemed to be incorrect, then that prophet was basically stoned to death. So it was a pretty full-on role. However, in the New Testament, the word prophet is the same, but the meaning is kind of quite different. It's similar in the sense that it's God's word speaking, but it's different in that it's recognized as partial, open to error, and without the authority of the Old Testament prophets. So in 1 Corinthians 13, we read, for we, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. And Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 14 to say, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is being said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first one be silent. So in the Old Testament times, you would never have it where a prophet was speaking and you would jump up and say, hey, be quiet, it's my turn to prophesy. That would never happen. So an Old Testament prophet and what we see as the gift of prophecy or the gift of a prophet is quite different. And it's important to note that in all the references to the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, they're all based around the gathered church like we are this morning. So you don't really read about prophets today. If you do, it's probably a little bit dodgy. So because any gifts of prophecy that are used are used in the gathering, 
It means that they can be weighed and examined by others. So prophecy today should never start with someone saying, thus says the Lord. That would not be uh, right because we see in part and we speak in part. What we should in fact be doing is saying, I just sense that the Lord might want to say this morning that he knows some of us are hurting and he is with us and he loves us. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Or we may have somebody say, I just sense that God wants to remind us about Deuteronomy 31. So let me illustrate how I, th how I think this gift would be used in the church and just how it kind of works with, with us. And this is an illustration that's taken from a friend of mine, Pete Greasley. So imagine you have somebody that you've never met before, that someone who, I don't know, has changed your life in some way. For me, it could be John Piper. I've read tons of his books. I've listened to loads of his sermons. And although I've never really spent any time with him, it almost feels as if I know him. And then one day, just out of the blue, the phone rings. And I pick up the phone, and it's a kind of a crackly line, and it's hard to hear. But at the other end, a voice says, Hey, Matt, it's John, John Piper. I just wanted to remind you of something that I wrote in one of my books that God's grace is sufficient for you. And I just wanted to remind you again of his goodness. Goodbye. Isn't that amazing? Just something so special. So in saying that, we need to remember that we obviously believe in the sufficiency of this book. This is everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. So this is our authority. But there are times when God in his grace whispers to us. He may whisper, Matt, don't forget I will never leave you or forsake you. When God does that, it's very real. We feel his presence. We feel his love towards us. I didn't doubt it. I'd read it many times in his word. But when he does it that way, something happens. Something becomes even more real. We do believe without a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is enough. If we had nothing but the Bible, we have everything we need. But when God speaks to us in this way, his love becomes very present and real to us. Something special happens that brings about encouragement and builds up both individuals and the church overall. So that is how sometimes we see God outworking through his gift of prophecy to us. The third office that Paul talks about is that of 
the evangelist. And this gift to me feels very similar today to the way it felt in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the New Testament. As a reminder, Paul is talking more about the office of the evangelist or of an evangelist than the gift of evangelism. But we'll look at both again just to help bring some clarity. So the term evangelist comes from a Greek word that means messenger or the one that preaches the gospel. You've probably heard that before. And as with prophecy, many people may may possess the gift of evangelism. But some of us have a more special, distinct gift where they are actually recognized as an an evangelist. So this might be a role that is just in the local church. I was um, in a church for many years where we had a church evangelist. He had the office of evangelist and um, he actually taught me to rock climb, which was amazing. So he did more things than just preach the gospel. But sometimes a church evangelist would actually do more than just be in the local body. He might move around and, and share the gospel in different ways. So when we think about Chuck Colson or Billy Graham, they would be an office of evangelist that would work outside of just the local church. And obviously their role is very similar. They would preach the gospel to bring people to Christ. So in all of this, whether we have the calling and office of evangelist or we have the gift of evangelism, either way, all of us are called to preach the gospel. So we all are told by Jesus to share the gospel, whether we have the gifting or office or not. So in Acts 1, we read, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is Christ's commission to us to always go out and share the good news. Now we know that obviously God illuminates through his Holy Spirit people's hearts, but it's our job to bring the gospel to them, to share the gospel. Now obviously, like me, probably many of us are fearful of doing that. It terrifies me um, to share the gospel. But I think we would all agree that if we shared the gospel with someone and they got saved, it would be probably one of the most amazing things we can imagine. And I know that people who have shared the gospel and people have been saved through them have talked about it for years. This could be something that we could be doing all the time, just sharing the gospel and seeing what God wants to do with that. So wherever we stand in gifting, we shouldn't make excuses, but we should encourage each other to always be getting out and speaking about God to one another and to our friends and family and co-workers. The final office that Paul talks about here is the office of shepherd and teacher. Now, some people would argue that these are two separate offices, two separate things, but I'm convinced just from what I've read just this last week that probably Paul is talking about just one person. So one person would have both the shepherd and teacher um, office. 
So the word shepherd in Greek denotes that of a church leader. So an elder, an overseer, or what we see here as a shepherd. So in our church, the role of a shepherd and teacher would be Dale, or it would be Jer. That is the office of elder that we've been given in our church. And in doing that, the role is to protect the church, to lead the church, to care for the church, and to feed or teach the local church. And the Bible is really clear that the ability to teach or preach is an essential gift for a church leader. In 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 13, we read, Command and teach these things, that no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example by speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And in Titus, Paul goes on and says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So like the other offices of apostle or prophet or evangelists, the elders of our church and the elders that Paul gives us are given us as gifts to protect and lead and care and teach us God's word. So these four offices are given to equip the saints. They are there to equip us to do the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. I think Jordan will be very proud of me. I managed to get a hockey analogy in here, knowing nothing about hockey, obviously. So think of the church not as a hockey game where you've got 20 or 23, I read sometimes, players, um, and they're doing all the work, and there's 19,000 spectators at Rogers Arena just watching from the stands. That isn't how church should be. Instead, we should think of church as the actual hockey team itself. The players are the congregation. That's most of us. The shepherds and teachers, Dale and Jer, would be the coaches. The evangelists are out there promoting the game. And the apostles and prophets, in whatever form they take, bring stability through God's word and encouragement and comfort to the players. Finally, the spectators watching the game are our unbelieving friends and family and co-workers who desperately want to join the game but need us to tell them how to do that. So this is how the body of Christ should be. Finally, we come to my fourth point, and we're about halfway through at this point. I'm only joking. <laughs> we're not even halfway. We are. Um, <laughs> okay, finally, the last point. Paul concludes his thoughts by saying that now Christ has given us these different offices and gifts, um, that they're used to equip the body and build up the church until we all obtain to the unity of the flesh and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure 
of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So firstly, in this section, Paul goes back to that topic of unity that we heard about from Jer just last week. Paul is calling the church to be unified based on the salvation that we have through Christ. We are not to be divided by crafty, deceitful schemes of the enemy. When we're not in unity with each other, Paul goes on so far as to call us immature and children. He exhorts us to be mature in Christ, that we would grow up into the knowledge of the Son of God and put these childish ways behind us. So the way that we were to avoid these deceitful schemes is to really to know God's truth through the pages of Scripture. That's why we have this book, to help us grow into maturity. Over the last few years, the enemy has employed various tactics to drive us away from God's word and drive us apart as a church. How many of us have spent endless hours just scrolling through Facebook or Twitter looking for the latest news or worldly wisdom on what on earth is going on? Or spent time looking up endless statistics on COVID so that we can appear more informed than somebody who disagrees with our particular view? This isn't really bringing unity to the church or growing us up into mature Christians. This year, let's spend more time in God's word than we do on Facebook. Let us read of the great saints who have gone before us and all the amazing things that they have done instead of just investing hours reading through worldly news. If we spent just half an hour each day studying the Bible in more depth than we spent hours randomly looking at YouTube videos, think how much more mature and grown up we would be. And this growth and maturity will both bring strength and wisdom, not only to us individually, but to us as a church. And it will bring us together. As we know more about God's word, we will become more stable and not so persuaded by the world. I don't know about you, but I love the ocean. If you know me, I love to be near the ocean. And I've always wanted a boat. Um, I think more just to have it on my drive to drink a beer out of occasionally, but I've always wanted a boat and I love the sea. The problem that I have is that I get insanely seasick. You just have to show me a boat and I start going green. So whenever I'm on a boat and then the waves begin to go to and fro, I get seasick real quick. And I'm pretty much incapable of thinking straight at that point. 
All I do is I just sit in a corner and long for it to be over. And this is what the world seems to do to us as we listen to the world, we are just tossed to and fro. It fills our mind with deceitfulness and fear and it turns each other against each other. It causes our focus to stray further and further from the cross and it moves us more and more towards worldly wisdom as opposed to biblical soundness. But we are more than conquerors, Romans tells us, through him who loves us. Instead, let us speak and act in love to each other. Even if we don't fully agree with each other, let's still speak and act in love. Yes, we have different perspectives on many things from doctrine to how we raise our children to how we think a church should be run to whether we should wear these silly masks or not. But in all things, God is calling us to unity. And remember, God isn't calling us to uniformly, uniformity where we all think the same, but unity. So even when we have differences, we can still love each other and work together for the building up of the church. Last week, Jay reminded us in Ephesians 4, that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I don't know about you, but when I read that list of attributes, humility, gentleness, patience, love, unity and peace, what does that mean? remind you of for me it just reminds me of Christ and how he has acted towards me thank goodness he is gentle and patient with me constantly loving me even when I constantly sin over and over often in exactly the same way that I've already asked for his forgiveness but he is so gentle and patient with me and he brings peace into my life even in the worst of moments. So if Jesus can be this way with us, given our sin against him, how much more can we be kind and loving towards each other? Paul finishes this section by describing the church in the form of a human body, with Christ as the head and the rest of us as the rest of the body. We are to be held together by Christ, but each of us has a part to play. It's just one part of the body. If just one part of the body is not united, then the whole body is kind of out of step and is weak. So let us grow up into Christ. Let us put away childish thinking. Let us become mature, living in unity and love together. So in summary, we are called to bear with one another in love. And we are called to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Christ has given us gifts to equip the church for works of ministry. And through them we are to grow up into the knowledge of Jesus, which will result in maturity of the church. We are to speak to one another in love and truth. And in doing so, the church will become healthy 
and mature and work properly the way God wants it to. And all of this is done through God's amazing grace. We are saved by his grace alone and we are strengthened by his grace alone. And we need to remember that there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. If you're sitting here thinking, oh, maybe I haven't acted this way over the last few months towards others, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We just repent and turn and act in the way that God is calling us to. God is madly in love with his bride. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to grow up into all that he has for us. Let us remember that Christ gave himself up for us, that he might sanctify us, having cleansed us by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or with any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is all of grace. Let us simply step back in step with the Spirit. Let us love each other despite our differences and let us live in the unity that Christ's death has been made possible for us. So let me just pray and then Natalie can come back and lead us in worship. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for dying for us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins you made us alive in Christ thank you father for your amazing scandalous grace to us I pray father that you would just bring just such a closeness to us as a church Uh, we are all family we have all been through so many different things I pray that you would just bring more and more unity to us as a church I thank you, Father, for the offices that you've given us. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jer and for Dale in leading us as a church. Just pray, Father, that you would just bring your spirit to us as you have and that you would just bring unity to us. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.